Hello and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. We are back from summer vacation. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And on this podcast, we discuss issues of interest to the local, national, and international endurance communities. During the time that we've been away from you, undoubtedly you've done all sorts of interesting things. You might have competed in a late summer or early fall Ironman, such as Ironman Wisconsin or Ironman Mont Blanc. You might be getting ready for Ironman Chattanooga coming up next weekend. Uh, I'm sure you watched the Vuelta España, which was a great, the third and final Grand Tour of the year. And I am certain that you watched the Olympic Games. Um, and in fact, today, tonight on the podcast, we are going to be talking about the Olympic Games and some of the stories that came out of the Olympic Games that I thought were interesting and, and provocative and, and will undoubtedly redound into the future. Um, I had kind of mixed feelings going into the Olympics. Um, on the one hand, the Olympics are the pinnacle of endurance sports. Uh, and because I've been an endurance athlete for more than 20 years, the Olympics have always been a big deal to me. Uh, what's more... I grew up in the metro Atlanta area in the 1980s. We were awarded the games in Atlanta in 1990. As it happens, I was part of a group of 60 young people who were sent to Tokyo to rally last-minute support with the IOC to try and get the games to come to Atlanta, and then they did. Um, the games were centered largely around Georgia Tech when I was in Atlanta uh, in 1996, um, and I went to Georgia Tech as an undergrad. So the entire time that I was there from 1992 to 1996, I was seeing the campus change and the city change and all the venues being prepared for the Olympic Games. And so I have a long history with the Olympics, um, and, and I've always appreciated them. On the other hand... We were getting so much bad press out of Rio de Janeiro. We were hearing so many things out of Brazil that seemed to suggest that that it really wasn't going to be a good situation for the athletes. Um, I, I kind of felt that if I played into watching the Olympics and supporting the Olympics and promoting the Olympics, um, that in turn I was playing into forcing the athletes, particularly athletes from my sports, from the endurance sports, from the sports that don't get a whole lot of attention the other three years of the of the Olympiad, um, to subject themselves to danger, um, that I was being party to trying to put them into a dangerous situation, particularly when it came to Zika. Um, you know, these are mostly young athletes, many of whom will compete in the Olympics and then might take the next few years after that to try and have kids. Um, and the idea that... that they were putting themselves, or we were roundaboutly forcing them to a place where they would have to go and put themselves uh, in a situation where they might ultimately have kids that would have severe birth defects uh, within the next few years. I mean, that, that, that to me was something that I was very uncomfortable with. But then at the same time, I also felt like the bad press might be a little bit overblown. Um, there's always bad press about how people are underprepared or the Olympics committee just haven't got it together yet. Um, and in addition, it felt a little bit racist to me, to be honest. Um, there was this sort of tinge about, well, it's Southern Hemisphere, well, it's Brazil, it's part of the developing world, not sure if, if, if really they can pull off something this big and this important. Um, and it felt kind of condescending to me as well. So, I really hardly knew what to think going into the games, and, and I had very mixed feelings about it. Now, my wife kind of gave me a hard time saying that as soon as the game started, 
I was going to get over any reservations I had, and I was simply going to watch them and ignore them. Um, and she was, to be honest, mostly right. Um, as soon as the game started, I did enjoy them. I watched the opening ceremonies. I watched the first week of the games, um, and I enjoyed a lot of the performances there. Um, it seemed like a lot of the bad news that folks wanted to talk about in the run-up to the games just wasn't really a part of the coverage once the games actually began. Um, but the thing that really kind of pushed me over the edge and the thing that said, okay, I'm good with it. I can embrace these Olympics and I can enjoy these Olympics just like most of the rest of them. And I can actually do a podcast on them afterwards. Um, came from the blog post that uh, my friend and coach, Matthew Rose, who is the uh, founder of Dynamo Multisport here in Atlanta, um, wrote from Rio de Janeiro. Now, Matthew, I should say, has some experience with the Olympic Games. Uh, he has a family member that's actually been on the Olympic team before. Um, and then he also has uh, heritage in Brazil. He also has family from Brazil. And so as soon as the Olympics were announced that, that they were going to be in, in Rio de Janeiro, he started making plans to go and to take his kids with him there. Um, and he wrote a couple of blog posts while he was down there. And he finished up one of the ones he wrote um, by addressing directly some of the issues that people like me had heard about and were concerned about. Uh, and this is what he wrote from Matthew Rose. Water quality, Zika, We've had our kids and ourselves in the water at Ipanema Beach. Nobody is violently ill. Just like every other time I've been down to Brazil, I haven't seen a mosquito once. Obviously they are here, but I still haven't seen one. Every Brazilian we've talked to here in Rio effectively laughs off Zika relative to a Rio issue. It's a Brazil issue, yes, but Zika hasn't been an issue here in Rio given its climate and unique geography. There is a disconnect between what I'm reading in the media and what I'm experiencing down here. I would tell you all back home to take the information being distributed with a grain of salt. Are there issues? Yes. Could the games be more organized? Yes. Is this a Western Standard Games like Sydney or London? No. Did Brazil miss some opportunities to showcase their wonderful country through the pageantry of these games? Yes. But they didn't miss an opportunity to do what Brazilians do, open their arms and welcome the world with a warm embrasso and invite them to samba for two weeks. For me, the inconsistencies are easy to forgive, probably because I know that this dance with my crazy relative usually is like, but also because I know what I value most about this country. It's diverse, interesting, proud, and fun-loving people. Unquote. So for Matthew to kind of say, yes, indeed, from here on the ground, I can tell you that a lot of that stuff that you're reading is just overblown and perhaps even fueled by um, some condescension and racism. That was enough for me to, like I said, sort of embrace the games and, and, and enjoy them fully. Um, and I'm glad ultimately that I did because I thought they were fantastic uh, games. Now, why talk about them on this podcast? Well, I think the thing that inspired me to talk about them on the podcast um, was an interview that I saw that Bob Costas did with Michael Phelps. Um, many of you probably saw it. They had the long version on it of it uh, streaming online, and so you could actually watch the, the 30 minutes uninterrupted um, uh, interview online uh, with Bob Costas and Michael Phelps. Um, and the question that stood out to me the most is that he asked Michael Phelps, why did you decide to come back one more time? He said, you've been in the Olympic Games in 2004, 2008, 2012, and then you were all retired and you decided to, to make this comeback for 2016. And, and much heralded comeback, and of course everybody's seen the Under Armour commercial about how hard he's been working in order to try and make the comeback successful. And of course, you know, I don't have to worry about the Explorers with the, uh, the Olympic Games. It was more than a month ago. Um, it was a very successful comeback. Um, but why, asked Bob Costas, did you want to come back? And Michael Phelps cited 
essentially two reasons. And they're reasons that I felt that everybody could relate to if you've ever done any amount of sport. Um, Michael Phelps is a brilliant athlete, one of the best of all time, but yet I couldn't help but think about the podcast that I did a few months ago where I said, you know what, fast versus slow, it's all pretty much the same because we're all athletes. Um, and, And what he said was, first, he said, back in London, I underperformed. He said, I went into it kind of not really training my best. I'd obviously done some training, um, but I underperformed. And of course, Bob Costas comes back to him and says, you won like five or six medals there, some of which were gold. And he said, yeah, but it's not the same. He said, I didn't do the best that I could possibly do. And I think so many of us can relate to that idea that even if we did well in a race, even if we won it, even if we got a a medal for our age group, um, something like that, that feeling of emptiness that comes from not having reached your full potential or having missed an opportunity um, is something that I think that all athletes can relate to regardless of what that opportunity provided or or what level you were were trying to achieve. The second thing he said, and this is the thing that I I really related to the most because it's something that I've actually talked about on this podcast before. As a matter of fact, I want to say it's the thing I talked about in the very first edition of this podcast. Um, is he said that that because he had been a swimmer for so long, there was something missing in his life when he stopped. Um, And you could see that in the way that the whole rest of his life kind of went completely out of balance um, as soon as he stopped being a swimmer. Uh, He gained something like 60 pounds, they said, and then he got arrested for a couple of DUIs, and and just everything kind of started falling apart for him. Um, And so he had to go back to swimming in order to refine the balance in his life. Once he put swimming and competing at a very high level back into his life, things kind of smoothed back out again. Um, he ended up falling in love. He ended up having a baby, or his you know, girlfriend had a baby. That is, he ended up becoming a father, I guess I should say. Um, and, and now he has set himself up in a position where, where he will have a better life once he's done with swimming because... He was able to find all the satisfaction he needed out of the pool while he was still in the pool, if that makes sense. So so he he's going to be able now retire and be more successful in retirement um, because he was able to go back and get his life right. Um, simply quitting swimming after 2012, he couldn't get his life right. He couldn't work out all the other pieces of his life until he went back to swimming and then worked on all those other pieces simultaneously, and now he can pull back out of swimming, and, and everything will be okay. Um, that's something I can very much relate to, um, and something that, that unfortunately I've experienced to some degree, even though by no means would I compare myself to Michael Phelps in terms of our athletic accomplishments. Um, you know, Bill Murray, you probably saw towards the beginning of the Olympic Games at one point, tweeted, I think that they should put one normal person in all the Olympic events so that we could have a basis for comparison. Um, and I think that's a pretty funny tweet, and obviously I, I agree with him because I think that sometimes we tend to forget how incredible, uh, how far out in front of the rest of us they would be um, when they're so close to one another uh, since they're all at the pinnacle of the sport. Um, but at the same time, I do think that that Michael Phelps experiences and, and undergoes a lot of the same thoughts and a lot of the same issues that many of us um, who will never even sniff at an Olympic caliber performance um, experience. 
Um, a couple other things I want to talk about that sort of grew out of the Olympics. Um, I've talked a lot on this podcast, not a lot, I've talked some on this podcast about uh, women and, and issues related to women in sports. And I'm sure that you probably saw this, um, but it's worth drawing your attention to in the event that you didn't. Um, the American U.S. women's team uh, in the Olympic Games was a brilliant team. Um, all told, the American team, the Team USA, both the men and the women, brought home 121 medals, as you probably saw. Of those 121 medals, the U.S. women brought home 61 of them. Uh, the men had 55 medals, and there were five in mixed events, which is like equestrian and mixed doubles tennis and things like that. Um, out of 46 American gold medals, our women won 27 of those gold medals compared to 19 that our men won. Um, that means that if the U.S. was divided into two countries, and so you had the U.S. women were one country and the U.S. men were another one, um, those 27 golds for the women would basically tie them with Great Britain for the most of any country, and that's Great Britain, men and women. Um, they would put them one ahead of China, so the, the women from the United States won more gold medals by themselves than the men and women from Team China did. Um, and, of course, it would put them ahead of the American men and everybody else. Um, now, it's worth pointing out that it wasn't always this way. Um, by comparison, at the 1972 Olympics in Munich, um, which are remembered, at least in my world, for a couple of things. One is Steve Prefontaine's brilliant but ultimately fourth-place finish uh, in the Olympic 5,000 meters. And two, uh, Lassie Viren, of course, winning the 5,000 and the 10,000 there. And, and I guess I should say three as well. Also the, the, the terrible tragedy um, that happened there around uh, the Israeli team uh, and the terrorists that, that took over the Olympic Village. Um, but in that 1972 Olympics in Munich... The American women won 23 medals of all colors, uh, compared with 71 medals for the U.S. men. Um, they didn't win any medals of any color in gymnastics, and they didn't have any golds in track and field uh, at all. Um, However, 1972 is also a notable year in sporting history because that same year is the year that Title IX was enacted uh, that began requiring uh, schools to provide an equal sporting opportunity for both men and women. Um, now, 44 years later, uh, I think we're very much seeing the, the, the fruits of that. Um, and I think it's important to mention how brilliant the, the, the American women are. Um, in light of a Cambridge University study that looked at over 160 million words recently, um, just before the Olympics this was released, and of course it was released timely to the Olympics in order to draw more attention to it, and I'm glad that it was. Um, this Cambridge University study uh, looked at what was called the Cambridge English Corpus, which is basically this massive um, <clears throat> stockpile of language um, that is published language. Um, it's a multi-billion word collection of written and spoken English, um, and it's taken from sources like social media, news, recorded, conversational speech, all that sort of thing. So they look at all these words, and they start comparing the way that men are discussed when you're talking about sports and the way women are discussed when they're talking about sports. Now, first of all, it should be said right at the outset that men are actually mentioned three times more often than women when people are talking about sports. Um, interestingly also, the most common word associations or combinations of words uh, when we're talking about women athletes, not about women generally, but about women athletes, are the words aged, older, 
pregnant, married, and unmarried. Um, on the other hand, words for men in sport will more likely be adjectives like fastest, strong, real, and great. Um, in addition, I thought this was interesting, women have often been depicted as taking part rather than competing to win in sports. Um, men and man is associated with verbs such as beat, win, dominate, and battle, whereas women or woman is often associated with words such as compete, participate, and strive. Um, so on the one hand, while we're seeing in the United States and, and elsewhere in the English-speaking world, women doing phenomenally well relative to their male counterparts, um, we're also finding via research that, that we tend to talk about them in very different and condescending ways. I think it's time for our language to catch up with reality. Um, now, speaking of issues around men and women um, and issues around gender and sex, um, one of the thorniest issues to, to arise out of the Olympic Games had to do with the South African 800-meter runner named Castor Semenya. Um, you probably saw Castor Semenya win the 800-meter uh, gold medal, uh, running about 155. Um, she's a brilliant runner. She's a 25-year-old runner from South Africa. Now, she has a condition called hyperandrogenism. Um, and it's a condition that means her testosterone levels are about three times that of the average woman. Um, and because of that, she has a pretty wide muscular frame. Um, she has a pronounced Adam apple. Um, she has um, uh, a lower voice uh, than some women do. Uh, and because of those superficial characteristics, some alarm bells were kind of triggered when she first came on the scene back in 2009 as an 18-year-old um, at the World Olympics, uh, World Championships of, of uh, track and field. Um, she, at that point, as an 18-year-old out of South Africa, after competing, was actually subjected to uh, a very degrading and very invasive physical exam uh, in order to determine whether she was, in fact, a woman. Um, and they found that, yes, indeed, she was a woman, despite, of course, her saying that she was a woman. Um, and and uh, they also found that she actually had an internal set of testes. Um, and so she has basically a structure inside of her body uh, that produces testosterone um, that, of course, jacks up her, her uh, testosterone levels and, and potentially helps her to perform better. Um, so in 2009, in the wake of Castor Semenya's um, embarrassment um, and, and um, exam that took place in 2008, uh, the IAAS imposed limits on how much testosterone a female athlete could actually have in their body. They said, this is the level, and if you have more testosterone than this, no matter how you get it, even if it's natural, even if it's a born-in condition that you cannot control, which is, of course, her situation, then you have to take drugs to lower your, test, your natural testosterone levels, or you have to undergo some sort of surgery that can potentially lower those. And so specifically, they were saying to her, you either need to chemically regulate your testosterone, bring it down, or you need to, to have those internal testes, which are driving up your testosterone levels, removed. Um, needless to say... That would be a phenomenally invasive surgery, but they're telling her, um, this South African athlete, um, this world champion, that if she wants to continue to compete, that's what she's going to have to do. Um, so she took drugs to lower it, um, and she slowed down. 
um, in 2011 and 2012 at the World Championships and the Olympic Games in 2012. Um, she won... Uh, the Olympic silver, and so she's still a very, very fast runner and still one of the best in the world, but she wasn't quite putting in the fast times that she had been putting in um, prior to her being forced to take drugs to lower her testosterone level. Um, In July of 2015, um, there was an Indian athlete, uh, an Indian sprinter, uh, who had a similar condition, appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, the CAS, which often gets involved in multiple sports, um, and the CAS overturned the ban, um, saying that, that the IAAF, the governing body for track and field, hadn't provided sufficient evidence that Caster Semenya's or any other athlete in a similar situation um, was getting as much advantage from uh, the testosterone boost as they said they were. Um, now, a lot of people have kind of looked at it and said, well, of course she was, of course she was. That may be so, but you still had to present that in an evidence-based step-by-step fashion, and the IAAF simply hadn't done that. Uh, they had picked sort of an arbitrary limit and said, this is where it's going to be, um, and Castro Semenya had to take drugs in order to get under that limit. But anyway, um, when the CAS overturned that ban um, and said that you no longer had to be below a certain testosterone level, um, she obviously quit taking the drugs to artificially lower her testosterone, uh, and as a result, she got faster once again. Um, she PR'd and she went on to uh, to win the gold medal in 2016. Um, now, if your Facebook feed is anything like mine, you probably had a lot of people talking about this in your Facebook feed around the time of the Olympics during the Olympic Games, um, and. It was mostly guys that were talking about it on my Facebook feed, um, and it was um, universally people who did not think it was okay that Castro Semenya had won a gold medal in the women's 800-meter race. Um, generally speaking, people took the, the, the attitude that she was not a woman, and therefore she shouldn't be competing against women, uh, that she was a man and that she should be competing against men. Now, it's worthwhile with that argument in mind to say that while she has raised testosterone, um, the reason why she could never be a man or the reason why she is a woman, even though she has high levels of testosterone, is because her body doesn't absorb testosterone the way that a man's body absorbs testosterone. And that's the reason why she is a female and the reason why she's um, genetically and biologically a female, um, even though she has such high levels of testosterone. So, so... You can't say she should be competing with men because she would actually be um, uh, at a disadvantage competing against men because her testosterone levels would be so much artificially lower than than most men would be. Um, now, of course, that's also putting aside the fact that she is a woman. Um, she's been raised as a woman. She's recognized as a woman. She calls herself a woman. Um, it's even on her birth certificate if that's the way that you want to go about it. Um, so so there, there's no mistaking the fact that, that she is a woman. And if she's going to compete in the Olympic Games, then it makes more sense for her to compete against women. My take on this, there's three parts of it. First of all, all athletes in the Olympic Games, every single one, particularly on Team USA, but, but I would submit that, that pretty much all athletes around the world who are taking part in the Olympic Games, and every athlete who's in taking part in an Olympic final, be it on the track or in the pool or, or on the mat or on the court or wherever it happens to be, have some sort of significant physical advantage over the rest of us. 
Um, that Bill Murray tweet about they should put a normal person in there. Absolutely. Every person that is competing in the Olympic finals are abnormal people. They have significant physical advantages, be it their wingspan, be it the size of their feet, be it how skinny their legs are, which, by the way, I've said this many times before, the circumference of one's legs has actually been shown to have the highest correlation with running speed uh, in lab tests, Um, be it their high VO2 max, whatever it happens to be. Um, We want to think in the United States that it's all about hard work, and if you just work hard enough, that's when it's going to happen. That's not all there is to it. Those athletes have to work exceptionally hard, harder than most of us can even imagine having to work at a sport um, in order to be able to to compete at that level. However, that doesn't mean that they don't also have born-in physical advantages. Um, It happens that her born-in physical advantage is one that we might not really see coming um, and that you might not have considered, um, but, but... it's just as, as common, um, and it's something that, that uh, she asked for to the same degree that somebody with a gigantic wingspan or big feet or skinny legs or high VO2 max or whatever also asked for. Um, and so it's a physical advantage just like those other things. Secondly, she's had a really hard road. Um, you know, In addition to all the sacrifices that any Olympic athlete has to make in order to be a world-class athlete, in addition to growing up black in South Africa which if you know anything about the history of South Africa, even the recent history, is a pretty hard road to hoe. Um, She's had to deal with all of this fallout over the course of the past seven or eight years. Um, Since she came on the international scene, she has been constantly scrutinized and subjected to all sorts of degrading treatment. Um, If you look online, not only are people referring to her as a he or as a dude, she is commonly referred to as it. Um, as if she's some sort of unclassifiable beast and, and, and something less than human. This is all the stuff that she has to overcome in order to compete. And if the Olympic Games are all about overcoming things through sport, if the Olympic Games are all about meeting challenges and rising above them to go faster, higher, and stronger, I submit that she's what the Olympic Games are all about. Third, I also think, and I'm not going to articulate this well, that it's not just about fair play, but it's about something deeper. Like I said, most people I saw about this complaining about this online were guys, and I think that A, they just didn't like that a woman was so much faster than they were, or B, they didn't think that she was cute enough to win a medal in a women's sport. Um, And women are subjected to all sorts of scrutiny that men simply aren't subjected to. Um, Every female athlete, everyone that I've ever seen uh, do something amazing I've also heard a guy at some point talk about how she looks or talk about what she was wearing when she won that gold medal or, oh, yeah, ain't it cool how she also did it or who she's married to or something else like that. Think back to the study I was talking about just a minute ago about women and the way that we talk about them in sport. Um, to me, the fact that she doesn't match what we think a good-looking, sporty, athletic woman should be, um, that she's a little bit too fast and her shoulders are a little bit too broad, um, and that her voice is a little bit too low. I, I think that that's the reason why we have such a problem with her. Um, I've heard men complain about the looks of Katie Ledecky, um, who is one of the most dominant, if not the most dominant athlete on the planet in any sport right now. Um, you'll hear men talk about Venus and Serena Williams. Um, Serena and Venus Williams, there's no getting around the fact that they're a couple of the greatest athletes of all time. Um, 
But yet, when we talk about them, we also want to talk about how they look and how they're built and things like that. Men don't have to deal with that. I, as a man in sport, I don't have to deal with that. And that's not right. Um, and I think that, that, that part of the criticism around Castor Semenya um, is bound up in the history that we have of, of making women prove that they're women uh, by matching some sort of ideal model we have of what a woman is supposed to look like. Um, leave you on that note with, with a quote from Castor Semenya herself. Um, towards the end of the Olympic Games, she said, quote, I think sport is all about loving one another. It's not about discriminating its people. It's not about looking at how people look, how they speak, how they run. It is not about being muscular. It is all about sport. When you walk out of your apartment, you think about performing. You do not think about how your performance looks, how your opponent looks, unquote. Um, and I think she said that well. Um, last story I want to talk about. Last thing I want to talk about out of the Olympics here um, is something that nobody missed. I thought about calling this like, in case you missed it, and nobody missed this last story. And it's a story, of course, of Faisha Lalisa. Uh, Faisha Lalisa is uh, the Ethiopian runner who won a silver medal in the Olympic Games uh, in the marathon uh, on the last day of the Games um, uh, last month. So everybody saw this. He crossed the finish line, uh, and he formed an X with his arms as he crossed the finish line. Um, now, if you're like me, as soon as he did that, you said, that means something. There's something there. Like, like that isn't just, you know, he wasn't holding up his arms in, in general celebration. That was something that felt very specific, that he was clearly trying to send a message with that. Um, and I immediately went online and tried to find out what it was. And within only an hour or two, there was a lot of articles that started coming out about what it is that Fiusa Lelisa was actually trying to say with it. Um, now... If you Google Marathon and Lisa, by the way, you're going to find a lot of stuff about Lalisa de Sisa, uh, who is a different uh, Ethiopian runner. We're talking about Faisa Lalisa. Now, Faisa Lalisa is only about 25 or 26 years old. Um, he's run under 205. He's one of the top, top 10 fastest marathoners of all time. Um, he is the youngest person ever to run under 205, as a matter of fact, um, when he ran 204, uh, I think at the Rotterdam Marathon is where he did that. Um, but uh, anyway, he's also a member of uh, an ethnic group called the Oromo people in Ethiopia. And the Oromos make up about one third of the population. Um, now, without going too much into African history, because that's not really you know what we do here, um, there is very deep and very abiding and very ugly ethnic tension throughout all of Africa. Certainly it's been there for a long time, but it was very much stoked, expressly, intentionally stoked in the late 1800s and the early 1900s uh, by Europeans who were trying to uh, divide and conquer the country, uh, the countries, the land, the continent. Um, they they uh, would set groups against one another and, and uh, plant seeds for all sorts of conflict and then they were able to exploit in order to rob the land um, of its natural resources. Um, you've seen lots of times over the course of the past 20 or 25 years um, these ethnic tensions explode into a lot of ugliness. You've seen it in Nigeria. Uh, you saw it probably most notably or most uh, famously or most infamously, most notoriously in Rwanda in 1994 between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Um, but, but you certainly see it in Ethiopia still today, even though Ethiopia um, is, is the only country that was never expressly colonized, as you probably know, in Africa. Um, and 
he's a member, as I said, of the Oromo people, and they have a very deep and and um, ugly relationship um, with another group of the uh, of of people in Ethiopia called the Tigay people, um, and it's mostly the Tigays who are in charge of the government. Um, now, the government is centered in Addis Ababa, um, and that happens to border right on the edge of the Oromo's traditional homeland. And last year, the government, which again is run by this this uh, different ethnic group, basically said, we want to extend the capital, the property of the capital, the territory of the capital of Addis Ababa, into the traditional homelands of these Oromo people, into Oromia. Um, and the Oromo people stood up against it and, and refused. They took to the streets, they protested, um, and things got pretty ugly. Um, Eventually, the government dropped the plan, but the Oromos, being mobilized, um, decided to to capitalize on the moment and basically begin to draw attention to the fact that they are an oppressed group in uh, in Ethiopia. Um, it's not unlike the civil rights movement in the United States, save for the fact that the Oromo are actually a plurality of the people. Um, perhaps it's more like the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. Regardless, um, it's essentially a group of people coming together and protesting against their government, calling for more representation, more recognition, um, and less structured inequality uh, in their society. Um, And the government has responded pretty brutally. Um, Ethiopia has often been held up as this model for peace and and a great place according by by Western standards. Uh, And in fact, the government's very controlling, and we've seen that in a lot of the crackdowns the government's been doing against the Oromo people over the course of the past year. Human Rights Watch estimates that up to 400 Oromo have actually been killed by the government uh, in related to the protests, and the government, of course, disputes that number. Um, the, there's an editor-in-chief of a, of a magazine called the Addis Standard um, that is sympathetic to the cause of the Oromo people, a woman named uh, Sadali Lema. Uh, and Sadali Lema was quoted, uh, she talked to, to SB Nation after, uh, after uh, Fiyisa Lalisa's protest, and she said, quote, Ethiopia has been praised as a poster child for peace and stability in the last 25 years. Western governments that continued financing this government, including the U.S. government, have turned their eyes away. To be able to tell this to the world where everyone can see on this stage was monumental, talking about Fayisa Lelisa's protest. It was telling the world to its face that this country, this poster child of peace, isn't that way. It's killing its own people. When everyone kept silent in the wake of the excessive killing, this young man protested at the great cost that he might not be able to come back to his country afterwards, unquote. Um, now the European or the European, the Ethiopian government responded by calling him a hero and saying, "No, no, we will totally welcome home. You're totally safe. You should come on back. Uh, we appreciate the fact that you won a silver medal." But pointedly, they didn't replay the finish of the race on state TV. They were showing the marathon live, and so it was shown on state TV as he crossed the finish line. Um, but when they showed the replays, they would always cut it just short of him crossing the finish line, and of course, putting up that big X sign. Um, there hasn't been a big uptick in protests in the street um, because there are very tight controls in Ethiopia by the government about celebratory gatherings of people, um, either to protest against the government or just to get together. Um, the, the right to assembly, which we take pretty much for granted here in the United States, is a right that is not held by most people in Ethiopia today. Um, but there has been a whole lot of praise on social media. Um, and 
in particular, a lot of expatriates from uh, uh, Ethiopia who are located around the world have been reaching out and, and praising him as well. Um, there was a guy named Saeed Mohammed Ademo, who is the founder and editor of a website called opride.com uh, that reports on our Romo News. And he said, among his compatriots, including those in the diaspora, Lalisa's protest was welcomed with tears of joy. A hero was born out of relative obscurity. I have no doubt that it will be remembered as a watershed moment in the history of the Oromo people. Kids will be named after him. Revolutionary songs and poems will be written in his honor. For a people who have been silenced for so long, this is likely to embolden and generate more momentum for the budding movement in Ethiopia. Unquote. So kudos to Faisa Lalisa um, for, for his brave actions there and, of course, for uh, standing up and speaking out, or at least speaking through his actions, uh, against a government that he felt, rightly so, evidently so, has been oppressing his people uh, for far too long. Um, it is actually against the rules of the Olympic Games, so-called Rule 50, to uh, engage in political actions and protest, and he could have, under that rule, been disqualified and had been stripped of his medal. Uh, I'm glad he wasn't disqualified. I'm glad he wasn't stripped of his medal. And certainly, uh, I give him all the credit that he deserves. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. We're glad to be back and I appreciate your listening. Um, Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast. Check out our show notes at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Go to us on Facebook uh, where we shared actually a lot of articles during the Olympics about some of these issues. Facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Uh, check out the sponsor, ITL Coaching, at itlcoaching.com, uh, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on facebook.com slash performance. Lots of cool stuff that ITL Coaching and Performance is doing right now. Lots of good opportunities for uh, group workouts in and around the Atlanta area uh, that you will want to take part in. Um, don't forget also our other sponsor, my wife, Casey, the travel planner. If you're planning to go up to New York like we are in only seven weeks now from the New York City Marathon, um, or if you're planning to go to Kona, or if you're planning to go to Boston, or if you're planning to go wherever it is you're planning to go to race, uh, reach out to her and let her make your travel accommodations. It will uh, let you focus on training for your race. Uh, you can find her at facebook.com slash Casey, K-A-C-I-E, travel planner, M-E-V, or Casey, that's K-A-C-I-E, at U-G-A dot E-D-U. Thanks again for listening. Go on iTunes and give us a review. Peace. Peace.